Hi, you're listening to the Yale Anesthesiology Podcast. Make sure to visit our show website so that you can take advantage of the links of the papers that will be mentioned during this recording. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Antonio Gonzalez, and today I'm thrilled to present our guest. Dr. Michaela Farber is an associate professor and the division chief of obstetric anesthesia at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. She has been a guest speaker at many institutions and international meetings in which she has shared her knowledge regarding postpartum hemorrhage and many other topics. Today, she joins us to talk about postpartum hemorrhage, specifically the role of fibrinogen, the importance of early recognition and replacement of this coagulation factor, and the role of tranexamic acid during postpartum hemorrhage. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Farber. Thank you, Dr. Gonzalez. It's a pleasure to be here today. So, um, I mean, as obstetric anesthesiologists, the topic of postpartum hemorrhage is very important, and I think we can uh, agree on that. And there is so much great literature out there that it was kind of hard for me to figure out where to start. And immediately, I kind of thought about this paper that you came out with, which was the uh the paper titled The Most Influential Publication in Obstetric Anesthesiology from 1998 to 2017. And right there under postpartum hemorrhage, two great studies that I think have been landmark to our knowledge in terms of postpartum hemorrhage. And those are the studies by Charbid and colleagues and the, the woman trial. W would you mind uh, doing a quick review of the Charbid and colleagues study? Absolutely. And I, I'm really so happy that you're having me on to talk about um, the topic of postpartum hemorrhage because, as you know, it's the leading cause of preventable morbidity. Again, the leading cause of preventable maternal morbidity. So anything we can do as clinical obstetric anesthesiologists to think of tackling the problem should be the highest yield to lower maternal morbidity. And I'm thank you for bringing up the Charbit study because that's really where my interest in um, hemorrhage coagulopathy originated. And what the Charbit study um, from around 2007 um, did was they enrolled about 120 or so women at the onset of postpartum hemorrhage. And they defined that um, as the need for a secondary uterotonic agent. So after a woman delivered, if she had ongoing bleeding and needed a uterotonic, um, she was eligible for enrollment in the study. And they did this across four centers in France. After enrollment, patients were designated to have either severe or non-severe hemorrhage, and they defined that as a change in um, hematocrit uh, of 12% or more, a transfusion of four units or more of packed red blood cells, or death. There were no deaths in the study. So they ended up with 50 patients with severe hemorrhage, and um, the rest of the patients, just over 70, I think, had non-severe hemorrhage. And what they determined was that the fibrinogen concentration at the onset of the postpartum hemorrhage event, um, as defined, had a positive predictive value for um, progression to severe hemorrhage if the serum fibrinogen level was 200 milligrams per deciliter or less at the time of onset. And this study really gave us a, a very important context to think about the importance of serum fibrinogen levels in women at the time of delivery and how it can impact their postpartum hemorrhage risk. To this day, we're not quite clear whether the low fibrinogen in the serum at the time of hemorrhage is causing the hemorrhage itself or is a result of the severity of hemorrhage. 
And that's really catalyzed a lot of interesting research today. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think the Charbit study was really influential in the way I practice and I care for patients with postpartum hemorrhage um, today. So they did a great job at, at showing that fibrinogen was actually a very good predictor for severe postpartum hemorrhage, as you as you mentioned, and is is the earliest factor to be consumed during postpartum hemorrhage. Am I fairly assessing the literature thus far? I think you're absolutely right, and you know we have to think of fibrinogen, which is factor one, as the um, most abundant procoagulant factor in the bloodstream at the time of term gestation. And so, you know, part of what we see sometimes with abrupt hemorrhage and resuscitation can be attributed to hemodilution because, again, this is the most abundant factor, so it will be the most sensitively detected for dropping in, in the context of giving um, crystalloid resuscitation. But some important studies um, that we might talk about later have demonstrated that, um, in fact, the the concept of hemodilution can't completely explain why serum fibrinogen falls to the extent it does during a postpartum hemorrhage event. So there, it's likely that it's multifactorial and that there's a hemodilution effect involved in conjunction with um, fibrinogen consumption through activation of coagulation. And third, hyperfibrinolysis, which takes us to the second paper you mentioned um, of importance, uh, or that I mentioned of importance in my uh, review, um, the woman trial. Yes, we will definitely talk about hyperfibrinolysis, which is very interesting topic, and and we'll be discussing that very shortly. Now, I'm actually very interested because, as you mentioned, the um, the study from Charbid and colleagues. They actually um, mentioned that a close fibrinogen level of less than two grams per liter is a good predictor of progression to severe postpartum hemorrhage. That being said, once we detect fibrinogen um, that it's in the lower end, right? We know that during pregnancy, the fibrinogen levels of our parturients tend to be in the 400s, 300s. That's very normal for our uh, patient population. But once that number starts going down to the 200 or even lower than 200, what what is your goal? What what do you aim for once you've um, you know kind of determined that a patient has low fibrinogen? And by low fibrinogen, I'm going to say less than 200 or very close to 200. Well, I think it's a million dollar question, Dr. Gonzalez, and I think um, because of what Charbet and others have shown in the literature of the, you know, the relevance of a, a fibrinogen level of 200 mg per deciliters and its association with hemorrhage, that is a reasonable clinical marker um, or clinical goal um, to achieve. And it's important to realize um, in a woman at term gestation, a typical serum fibrinogen level is much higher than in the general patient population. So anytime we're managing a hemorrhage event, we have to take the patient context into direct focus. And pregnant women at term have a serum fibrinogen level between four and 600 milligrams per deciliter. So in the event you measure a serum fibrinogen and you see that it's 200 mg per deciliter or lower, that's very abnormal because of that context of having um, a predictably higher fibrinogen at the time of delivery. 
Yeah, so you mentioned these like physiologic changes of pregnancy, which are extremely important to to keep keep on mind when when we're dealing with postpartum hemorrhage. Now, ba- based on that, you know, traditionally speaking, we've been dealing with severe po- severe hemorrhage, right? And I'm not only severe postpartum hemorrhage; I'm talking about severe hemorrhage, right? Um, trauma. I'm talking about trauma. I'm talking about other areas, liver transplant. So I remember as a resident, always being drilled like one to one to one. Um, and, and that was the go to, the way to go. And actually massive transfusion protocols in many institutions uh, bring six units of red blood cells or five units of red blood cells and six, uh, five units or six units of, FF, of fresh frozen plasma based on that one to one to one ratio now we've been talking about a lot of about fibrinogen and you know the way i see it there's not a lot of uh fibrinogen in fi- fresh fr- frozen plasma so you know how do we manage postpartum severe postpartum hemorrhage do we manage it the same way we manage hemorrhage like trauma hemorrhage well, I think our job as clinicians is extremely um, challenging for this question. And I think there are several ways we need to look at this problem. So when, when the onset of postpartum hemorrhage occurs, when hemorrhage occurs in a patient who's postpartum, the first question is what is the acuity of the bleeding and what is the status of the patient? Um, if you have rapid, uncontrolled, unresolved hemorrhage and maternal instability, I never would suggest that a one-to-one-to-one approach would be inappropriate. In other words, by giving a one-to-one-to-one ratio of packed red blood cells, fresh frozen plasma, and platelets to any unstable bleeding patient, um, you're going to benefit them by reconstituting whole blood as closely as possible. However, as you know, most, many in most cases of postpartum hemorrhage do not have that degree of acuity or severity. Nonetheless, they have high morbidity and, and bleeding can be ongoing. So again, after that first question is answered about acuity, then the next question, if you have the time and there's not acuity that mandates one-to-one-to-one, then the question is, what is the etiology of the obstetric hemorrhage? What is your clinical suspicion or lab testing to indicate whether there's a coagulopathy? And then we go from there. And your point is well taken here. or It's a good point for us to make right now that most women with early and relatively stable postpartum hemorrhage do not have a coagulopathy. So when we're thinking about serum fibrinogen being high in a pregnant and recently postpartum woman, giving plasma in that situation of early postpartum hemorrhage will not be beneficial to them. I think you bring a, a great point, and, and that is that you have to know your hospital. You need to know your institution, right? At times, the fastest way to get blood products is by activating that massive transfusion protocol. And sometimes that's what we need to do. We need to activate that massive transfusion protocol. But it's also very important to keep in mind that there is this study, a great study that I love, um, a study by Collins and colleagues. And basically, they expose this theoretical model in which they try to 
replace fibrinogen using fresh frozen plasma. And as you can see in that theoretical model, there there is almost no way to really achieve two grams uh, of fibrinogen by using fresh frozen plasma. The way to replace fibrinogen is by using cryo or other uh, sources. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up that study by Dr. Peter Collins and colleagues. I think it was from 2014, and it's it's a fascinating theoretical modeling study about fibrinogen supplementation. And um, what their model demonstrated was a relationship between the amount of hemostatic agent transfused and plasma fibrinogen level. And the, um, the long story short is that for every 50 milliliters of fibrinogen concentrate, so if you use just purified fibrinogen protein, um, 50 milliliters, you would need a little bit more than that, 63 or 65 mils of cryoprecipitate for the equivalent fibrinogen um, concentration, and 1,250 milliliters, more than a liter of plasma. Um, so again, to achieve the same effect for fibrinogen replacement, you need 50 mils of fibrinogen concentrate compared to over a liter, 1,250 mils of um, plasma. So um, the the use of fresh frozen plasma when you really want to replenish a low fibrinogen level is highly ineffective, particularly in pregnancy. Yeah, and I, I think there's another great great um, editorial that was published in uh, IJOA 2018, and the title is is great. Uh, the title is essentially "How to Replace Fibrinogen in Postpartum Hemorrhage Situations." Hint: Don't use FFP. Uh, exclamation mark. So I think that was a great editorial as well. Tons of information that we can get from that editorial. I recommend listeners to uh, read that article. So that said, at your institution, do you have an OB-specific MTP protocol that takes our obstetric patient needs um, in consideration, as we mentioned, more focus on the early uh, replacement of fibrinogen by bringing up cryoprecipitate or fibrinogen concentrate. Yeah, we absolutely do. And I love what you've mentioned before, that you really need to know your hospital setting. It is absolutely fundamental for patient safety when you start working in a hospital that you understand what the response times and the response systems in place are. And so I, I see your point completely, or I completely agree with you that a massive transfusion protocol um, activation is a highly effective way to um, trigger the blood bank for quickest um, product acquisition in most hospitals. And if that is the fastest way to get red blood cells in your hand, it's probably worthwhile. Um, in the event you have a higher volume of higher risk postpartum hemorrhage patients in your hospital, and even in general, I would suggest that um, you adopt a specific OB hemorrhage protocol and put that in the same category in your hospital as the massive transfusion protocol. What we've done at Brigham and Women's Hospital over, um, over a decade now is we've established an OB hemorrhage protocol that, um, again, is activated with the same degree of speed and acuity as our massive transfusion protocol. I would argue that it's even faster in my um, my clinical experience in the main operating room um, with MTPs and on labor and delivery when I have an acute postpartum hemorrhage. 
What our um, obstetric hemorrhage protocol activation involves is the immediate release of eight packed red blood cells, four plasma, and one dose of cryoprecipitate. And um, what the blood bank does is they'll put two packed red blood cells in um, an automatic transport um, directly to the labor and delivery suite outside of a cooler. So we get two units of packed red blood cells in hand within five minutes. And I can say firsthand that has saved mul multiple lives under my care just to be able to have blood so quickly. Um, six additional packed red blood cells and the rest of the contents follow in a cooler. An important point to make is um, in terms of knowing your system and knowing what the response times are, many centers don't have thawed plasma available. So that adds to the time after request for getting plasma. Same goes for cryoprecipitate. So at my hospital, we keep thawed plasma at all times. It's, it's a wonderful place to work if you have a coagulation issue and you need plasma or massive transfusion. Um, but the cryoprecipitate is kept frozen. So when I order it, I know that it's going to take 45 minutes to thaw before it can arrive on the labor floor um, for the patient. Now, this is where the use of fibrinogen concentrate has some utility because how fibrinogen concentrate is stored is as a freeze-dried or lyophilized powder. And it's stable at room temperature. And for that reason, it can be stocked on the labor floor. At my institution, we stock it on the labor floor, and if I need fibrinogen really quickly and um, have either tested to demonstrate a coagulopathy or have clinical suspicion, I'll be able to quickly reconstitute fibrinogen concentrate, um, whether I've ordered the cryoprecipitate or not. Yeah, so so you mentioned the use of uh, fibrinogen concentrate, which is I think it's a it's a great addition to our, um, you know, the amount of resources that we have fibrinogen concentrate is great because as you as you mentioned uh it can be made up relatively quickly uh you don't need to obviously tow it you just have to mix and give to the patient what other advantages does the uh use of fibrinogen concentrate uh brings to the table besides the speed well, um, you know, in my mind, what it allows is very measured administration of fibrinogen replacement because we know when we give one vial of fibrinogen concentrate, there's a, a gram um, of fibrinogen you're administering. And it's important to recognize the equivalence of dosing between cryoprecipitate and fibrinogen concentrate. Um, and, and that happens to be three to four vials um, will, will typically be what's in a dose of um, cryoprecipitate, a five plus five pack. So um, this is something to talk to your blood bank about as well, because cryoprecipitate does have variable preparation. But a pre-pooled pack of five units um, of cryoprecipitate is, is common, and a five plus five pack is given as a single dose. And again, if you give cryoprecipitate as a single dose, you would need um, three or four vials of fibrinogen concentrate to be equivalent to that. Um, but the benefits specifically to fibrinogen concentrate, um, as I mentioned, are its ease of access. Um, it can be quickly reconstituted at the bedside because it's to, it can be stored um, on the labor floor itself as opposed to in the blood bank. It has um, less infectious risk because viral and other pathogens are removed by the, um, there's an inactivation of viral components by pasteurization and 
the filtration processing in its production. So for that reason, it could be considered safer for that uh, transfusion-associated risk. And um, again, it doesn't have to be thawed for 45 minutes like cryoprecipitate. And it has a longer, for that reason, a longer shelf life. And the the costs um, are variable depending on hospital and um, marketing. Um, but, you know, if you think about the cryoprecipitate that can go wasted if it's thawed and not administered, most blood banks will say between um, at 12 hours or, or less after reconstitution that um, cryoprecipitate needs to be discarded. So, you know, there have been cost analyses suggesting fibrinogen concentrate is more expensive, but if you factor in the cost of wasted product, um, it becomes a little bit more equivalent. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Actually, that answered my next questions, which were about the cost of the drug. But as you mentioned and greatly summarized, the, the benefits of the fibrinogen concentrate will probably outweigh its cost. So so now we, we definitely, you know, talk about replacing fibrinogen. And, you know, as you mentioned in your most influential papers, the next thing that was going to come up to mind is like, well, you know, fibrinogen is very important. We also need to protect it from being fibrinolyzed. So then comes uh, the, the woman's trial, right? So we just quickly summarize the woman trial was the biggest uh, learning point from that woman trial. Absolutely. So the woman trial, woman stands for the World Maternal Anti-Fibrinolytic Trial, was a massive undertaking. Um, more than 20,000 women with postpartum hemorrhage were randomized, importantly from um, predominantly low and middle income countries. And women were randomized to receive um, one gram of tranexamic acid or placebo upon diagnosis of their hemorrhage. And the um, tranexamic acid group could receive an additional gram of tranexamic acid if bleeding persisted 30 minutes later. And what the trial showed, looking at the placebo versus tranexamic acid group, was um, a 19% reduction in the relative risk of death from hemorrhage, which was a secondary outpoint, uh, outcome of the study um, in those who received tranexamic acid. In other words, the mortality um, from bleeding was 1.9 in the placebo group versus 1.5% in the tranexamic treatment group. And the benefit seemed to, to be enhanced if the administration of the medication occurred within three hours of birth. So, so after the tranexamic acid trial, the woman trial rather, came out in 2017, a whole host of guidelines shifted um, to advocate for the use of tranexamic acid for postpartum hemorrhage. Specifically, the World Health Organization recommended that tranexamic acid should be used for all women with postpartum hemorrhage, regardless of the mode of delivery, regardless of the cause of hemorrhage. So this is a massive um, clinical guideline change that resulted from this large trial. Yeah. So it's actually very interesting. You mentioned that the uh, that change, which was made a great impact in the way we practice today, now, you also mentioned something very important, which is the setting of the woman trial. How does this setting of a low-income, low-resource translates to our higher-income, higher-resources um, in the United States? 
can we translate one-to-one the experience of the woman trial to our practice? Well, it's a really important point to be made here um, with such a high-impact study. There are a couple important points. I think there is some um, reassurance from the woman trial that tranexamic acid um, did not have an association with major adverse effects. You know, follow-up of patients, we have to trust was adequate for that. But um, the safety of tranexamic acid at this low dose for postpartum hemorrhage seems to be acceptable. But if you think about the external validity of the study, um, as I mentioned, the study was done predominantly in low to middle resource countries. And the risk of death from hemorrhage in such countries is vastly different than it is in higher resource countries. So if you think about um, prevalence of the condition um, being measured as an outcome and number needed to treat, because the prevalence of death from from hemorrhage is so much higher, um, for uh, specifically in the woman trial, 190 um, hemorrhage deaths per 10,000 um, in the study period. The number needed to treat was calculated as one in 250. But if you take the prevalence of death from hemorrhage in a high resource country, um, such as Australia, as um, documented by Dr. Alicia Dennis in, in Australia, um, there are 11 deaths over a million and a quarter live births during a, a certain period of time. So based on those numbers, she calculated the number needed to treat with tranexamic acid in a high-resource country is not 1 in 250. It's 1 in 35,000, more than 35,000. So again, the number you need to treat to save a life in the woman trial is 1 in 250, whereas in a higher-resource environment where you have blood products at your fingertips, early, quick, effective resuscitation, the number needed to treat is more in the range of 1 in 35,000. And I think that's profound. Yeah, that that is a that is a very powerful number. So thank you for for citing that study. And um, w- with that said, I think you know you mentioned before that the woman trial it was a huge study, and the authors should be commended for how much work they put into it, and it proved that it was relatively safe drug to give. So I have no problem giving these this medication when we're faced with severe postpartum hemorrhage and, you know, I want to give it, you know, within the three hours. So I'm okay with that. But I think there was a point in which we translated the woman trial to now starting to give tranexamic acid prophylactically. When again, we're trying, we're still debating here whether whether tranexamic acid actually plays a role in our, in our setting, right? Uh, but now we're talking about giving tranexamic acid prophylactically uh, for certain patients. W- what are your thoughts regarding the prophylactic use of tranexamic acid? Well, it's an excellent question because everybody wants to do what they can to prevent postpartum hemorrhage to begin with. So it's a reasonable segue from the woman trial to say, well, if it saves lives, then maybe we should just give it to everyone and save more lives that way. Um, 
So before we move on to discuss that, though, I want to mention one thing about the safety of tranexamic acid that is absolutely critically important for obstetric anesthesiologists, and that there have been multiple cases now of reports of accidental intrathecal injection of tranexamic acid. So this typically occurs when you're not using a spinal kit that has spinal bupivacaine in it. This is a catastrophic medical error. It's been reported in more than 40 cases in obstetric anesthesia. And the mortality rate when a gram of tranexamic acid is injected in the spinal is 86%. So I think every anesthesiologist managing spinals for cesarean delivery needs to know about this risk, and we need to make our practice environments, um, frankly, those that this risk can't occur, whether it be triple checking a label as you're drawing up spinal medication, only drawing it up yourself, not storing ampules that look the same anywhere near each other, and just maintaining the highest level of vigilance. Prophylaxis, now we'll move on to that question. The, the, the use of tranexamic acid prophylactically has been studied in so many papers now, it's hard to keep track of them. And there's some controversy in the literature about the culmination of their results. So I want to highlight two really well done, high quality randomized trials that give us a lot of um, information um, by Loic Centiles and colleagues in France. Um, they designed the TRAP one, the TRAP trial um, for vaginal delivery hemorrhage and prophylactic tranexamic acid, and the TRAP two trial, which was um, prophylactic tranexamic acid for cesarean delivery. And both of these randomized trials um, that were well powered demonstrated no um, benefit of tranexamic acid when given prophylactically at the time of vaginal or cesarean delivery. Now, there have been other studies in the literature demonstrating um, some effectiveness. And because there's been a culmination of studies done, there have been meta-analyses. And there was a specific meta-analysis um, just last year in um, um, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology that looked at 36 trials, randomized trials, more than 10,000 women to get prophylactic tranexamic acid and it demonstrated effectiveness for prophylaxis. So if you read this meta-analysis, you would walk away from it saying, I should give every patient having a cesarean delivery tranexamic acid. However, the controversy is that there, um, the, the quality of the studies in, in this meta-analysis is limited. Um, there, the, um, the largest trial was that TRAP2 trial that I mentioned. Um, where there was a difference in, um, let's see, it was the difference in calculated quantitative blood loss, but not any clinically relevant dif differences. So the author of the TRAP2 trial actually brought up um, a letter to the editor about this meta-analysis um, concerned about selective reporting bias. Now, honestly, if you're just skimming the literature, this is very hard to integrate into clinical practice. but. I really trust the, you know, the opinion of the um, researcher who provided us the, the most robust data. And again, that's the um, French group that did the TRAP and TRAP2 trials. And um, their point of view at this current time is that um, the, the evidence generated in the TRAP2 trial um, has been distorted by substandard clinical trials 
and um, they specifically do not recommend um, that that everybody um, receive prophylactic tranexamic acid. So I know that was a long answer, but I think um, it speaks to the complexity of this clinical question. And um, my practice um, at this time, based on the literature and kind of a, a fine-toothed comb review of it, is that prof there's there's not enough evidence to justify administration of um, tranexamic acid to every woman having cesarean, and it's it's. Uh, more favorable to have um, a trigger that's postpartum hemorrhage related, whether that's quantitative blood loss or um, giving a secondary uterotonic or transfusing the first unit of packed red blood cells. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I am with you. I also, the way I am assessing the literature is by thinking that, you know, I'm going to give a tranexamic acid in case of postpartum hemorrhage, but I, I feel very reluctant to give it, um, uh, you know, prophylactically. There is a great editorial by Dr. Botwick um, that it's called Where Art Thou Fibrinolysis? And it talks about how complicated it is, right? Because we're, we're using this medication trying to treat um, hyperfibrinolysis or preventing hyperfibrinolysis from occurring. But even in severe hemorrhage cases, hyperfibrinolysis is not that much present. So it, I find it hard to justify giving this medication to try to prevent something that it's not there to begin with, not even in the severe cases. I absolutely agree with you. And that is an excellent editorial by Alex Butwick. Um, I highly recommend uh, a read of that. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things we've thought about at my center is what pharmacokinetic impact are we achieving when we give a gram of tranexamic acid? So more, again, back to the, the safety concerns, you know, what if there are more thrombotic events that um, we're not detecting clinically? Are we doing any harm by giving more people over time a gram of tranexamic acid? So we actually looked at the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of tranexamic acid in our study, approved to give prophylactically to women with a very high risk of hemorrhage. So these were women with suspected placenta accreta or women with placenta previa having a C-section. Um, by looking at women um, under these circumstances, um, we looked at 20 patients and we took blood samples at many, many time points. So at um, baseline and then three, seven, 15, 30 minutes, one hour, um, every half hour up to five hours. Um, what we demonstrated was um, very reassuring. And I just want to mention, um, when you talk about tranexamic acid and toxicity or morbidity, um, the, the serum level that typically occurs when you have seizure from an antifibrinolytic like tra tranexamic acid is in the range of um, 300 mics per mil. Um, you start to see thrombosis risk at 150 mics per mil. What we want for antifibrinolysis, um, in contrast, is 10 to 20 mics per mil. So we need much less serum concentration for antifibrinolysis. So remember, 10 to 20 mics per mil is what we want. Thrombosis happens at 150. Seizures happen, this is more in the cardiac literature, around 300. So with that in mind, what we found in our study in pregnant women having C-section was that that gram of TXA yielded a peak level um, three minutes after dosing. So it's got a great um, pharmacokinetic 
um, start time and serum levels um, peaked at 60 mics per mil. So much lower than the 150 at thrombosis, much lower than seizure threshold. It peaked at 60 mics per mil and then it stayed above that 10 mic per mil target for an hour after dosing. So what this study helped me with was understanding that when we give that gram of TXA to a woman who's bleeding after cesarean delivery, we're not giving her levels that are um, in a morbidity range, and we are achieving that antifibrinolytic range in the event that it's needed. And I thought that was a really great study. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, I have your study definitely will be in the um, in the show website uh, links. Uh, that study was a great study, so thank you for bringing that up. One additional thing I want to mention, um, just on along the lines of prophylaxis, should we do that for fibrinogen concentrate? Should we give fibrinogen concentrate to women um, up front just to make sure they don't dip to that threshold of 200 mg per deciliter? And there are some really important studies to demonstrate that we should not be doing that. Wickelson and colleagues um, administered two grams of fibrinogen concentrate at hemorrhage defined by 500 mils at vaginal delivery or 1,000 mils after cesarean delivery. So giving fibrinogen concentrate in the context of hemorrhage um, per se and demonstrated that there were no changes in um, hemorrhage outcomes, including transfusion requirement, estimated blood loss, or severe hemorrhage progression. So what she demonstrated very reliably, I think, is that if you have a hemorrhaging patient, there's no added benefit from just giving them two grams of fibrinogen um, blindly. And that speaks to the point of the importance of um, coagulation assessment and testing fibrinogen serum levels, testing point of care coagulation testing if you have the, uh, the ability to, and targeting fibrinogen in that sense as opposed to just um, blindly treating a patient. Yeah, that is like another great point. So thank you for bringing that up. Now, I would like to end the podcast with Dr. Farber's top five recommendations for managing postpartum hemorrhage. So my top five recommendations um, for the management of postpartum hemorrhage, uh, we've covered a few of them. Um, number one, assess the risk of your patients. Um, if a patient has history of three prior cesarean deliveries and they're coming to you with a current um, placenta previa, we know from the literature that their risk for placenta accreta spectrum is exponentially high. So we have the capacity to assess risk on many levels for postpartum hemorrhage in, in a great deal of times, a great deal of patients um, prior to entering the operating room and our patients deserve that we do that. The second point is know your environment. This is something we've talked about already. Um, know how to activate your blood bank so that you can have the rapid acquisition of packed red blood cells for when your patients have postpartum hemorrhage. Because despite risk assessment, the vast majority of postpartum hemorrhage occurs in patients without risk factors. There's a lot of research going on now to use um, artificial intelligence and machine learning to get better at risk assessment because we do have these gaps and we know that hemorrhage can occur unexpectedly. So the faster you can get blood products in your hand, um, you will save lives over the course of your career. Number three, um, recognize 
that coagulopathy detection and hemorrhage is um, highly variable because the heterogeneity of postpartum hemorrhage is clear. So you can have um, placental abruption with pathognomonic coagulopathy and a disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC. You can have uterine atony, which very rarely presents with early coagulopathy and everything in between, whether it's from retained placenta um, or other causes of postpartum hemorrhage. There's a long list. So the recognition that coagulopathy is um, variable and something you don't want to miss will help you manage uh, hemorrhage better. Uh, number four, fibrinogen concentrate is a promising tool to have in your arsenal for hemorrhage management because you can target um, coagulopathy and correct it in a way that is faster and more measurable, um, keeping in mind that cryoprecipitate still has a role for more unstable bleeding or more profound coagulopathies because it has other procoagulant factors in it. Um, number five, tranexamic acid. We've talked about its safety. We've talked about its risks. Practice safely by uh, making sure that TX8 can't be um, mistaken for other medications, particularly spinal medications. And I wouldn't give it prophylactically at this time based on the evidence we have. Thank you so much. That was an amazing five recommendations. Uh, you're definitely an expert on this uh, field, and I really enjoy this talk uh, tons. Um, you mentioned another great point, uh, just to finalize there, and that is that we have been we've learned this one-to-one -one, uh, ratio from 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 med school. But as you mentioned, actually, postpartum hemorrhage may actually differ even from pathology to pathology. So not our, all our patients bleed the same. And it's hard to actually encase a one formulaic uh, strategy to treat them all. One size may not actually fit them all. So uh, thank you for bringing another great point. Um, a lot of knowledge shared today. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the time and your expertise. Thank you so much for, for joining us in this podcast today. Well, fantastic, Dr. Gonzalez. Thank you so much. I think um, what we've demonstrated here with our excitement is that we could talk for hours on this topic, um, and I'm, I'm happy to um, at some future point in time.